Welcome, Digital Wildcatters, to BDE, the Big Digital Energy Show. Colin? Yeah, Colin's out today. He's out expanding the global brand of Digital Wildcatters, and to that end, he's being fitted for platform shoes. But we have a very worthy co-host in the tradition of Wally Pip, Dan Pickering. Dan, welcome to Digital Wildcatters. Glad to be here, Chuck. Thanks for inviting me. Big shoes to fill, literally, <laughs> figuratively, something. That's nice. You ready to do this? Let's do it. All right. All right, Dan, story number one, we're going to California. This weekend off the shore of Orange County, California, 3,500 barrels of oil were spilled. Miles of beaches have been shut down. There was a massive air show that was canceled this weekend. Aerial photos showed 13 miles of oil sheen along the coast. The federal and state in, uh, have both opened investigations on the cause of this. It was clearly a pipeline leak, ultimately, of Amplify oil and gas. There seems to be an issue potentially with a ship anchor that's being investigated as a possible cause. Dan, I say this all the time. If there's a part of California we have that might be our friend, it's Orange County. Why did we need to dump oil on them? Very, very unfortunate. Um, you know, Chuck, the the challenge here is that, uh, you know, one of the things I think about is 3,000 barrels in California is like 3 million barrels in Texas and, and uh, or 3 billion barrels in Texas. And so it's, uh, it's you never like to see this sort of thing. Um, the long-term ramifications are going to be pretty minimal, and and I'm I, I don't want to be a homer here for the oil and gas business, but um, three thousand barrels—it's a PR nightmare in the worst possible place. You got a country that's trying to, or a, a state that's trying to de-emphasize hydrocarbons, and you do an oil spill in Surf City. So it's uh, it's terrible, but the long-lasting impacts uh, for for everyone except probably the company that's that's got the oil spilled is probably going to be relatively small. And again, I don't want to sound like a, a homer for the industry, and I'm going to circle back to something in just a second, but I mean, 5 million barrels a, a year naturally seep out of the bottom of the ocean um, off the coast of California. I don't want to do simple math and say 3,500 barrels versus 5 million means it's a drop in the pan because it strategically hit a spot and natural seepage microbes deal with that. So you don't see the impact that this has. But at the end of the day, I think that goes to your point that long-term ramifications will probably be minimal. But when we look at the impact of this, and let's look at it kind of through through two lenses, we'll look at it just general public sentiment, and then we'll look specifically to investors. Is this just another story that goes away in 60 to 90 days? Is this 
something big changes dynamics? Where do you think it's going to ultimately, a year from now when we're talking about this, what do you think? Yeah, th- this story will go up, go away in 60 to 90 days uh, unless, you know, the Huntington Beach uh, local newspaper, et cetera, will probably talk about it for longer than that. Um, but I think where it will come back is this is going to get mentioned as uh, the more aggressive politicians in California look to push hydrocarbon initiatives, whether that's any kind of uh, climate change net zero type initiatives or, you know, California's trying to wean natural gas out of out of various cities. So, you know, this will this will come up. Do we want it'll be it'll be the statement by the politicians that says, do we want oil on our beaches? Do we want dead birds? Do we want pipeline ruptures and natural gas explosions and that sort of thing? So it's going to come back in this ongoing pressure for California to to reduce or eliminate hydrocarbons. I think you've seen the meme out on Twitter, what's the fastest animal on the planet? And you see the hummingbird, the cheetah, Chuck Yates with a microphone running towards somebody that hates the oil and gas business. Unfortunately, that given some of the guests I've had on the podcast and the difference in opinion we may share about uh, those guests. But, um, you know, kind of to that end, I've actually had numerous folks from what I will call the other side reach out to me and and want to have discussions about things. And one of the more, what I'll call fairly reasonable environmentalists, who's happy to admit she could not live without her suburban because she has six kids, uh, but at the same time really worries about whether we're trustworthy as an industry. I talked to her this morning and she said, look, you know, if an anchor hit it, it was a ship, who knows, that stuff happens. But it really brings up an issue we're starting to see over and over again is this old infrastructure that's been around for 25, 50, 75 years. How do we how do we make sure that it's shut down properly and this stuff doesn't happen? Because we're seeing it's not just offshore California. We're seeing it in ranches in West Texas. Yeah, it's it's a challenging issue. It's one that's been around for a long time. And. You know, Chuck, I, t- I tend to think that it's right. It should be the responsibility of the owner and operator of of those wells or those pipelines or that infrastructure. Uh, sometimes it isn't. Uh, sometimes people just walk. Um, you've seen a cyclical business where there's a lot of uh, restructurings. And so some of this stuff gets missed. Some of it intentionally gets ignored. And ultimately, you know, there's a lot of talk about creating uh, you know, the equivalent of a super fund for uh, taking care of of energy infrastructure. Uh, ultimately, the industry is going to pay the price through some sort of higher taxes or, or more regulation. So um, I, I also think the industry is clearly trying to do a better job of self-policing. You know, the the there are there are no national um, carbon or ESG mandates at this point in time, but the industry's going hard at it because they know they have to. So, um, I, I think you're going to find a higher level of scrutiny and these things happen is going to, you know, those things are going to continue to happen. There will be access. It's a huge, there's a huge amount of infrastructure. So to think that we're going to be error free is unrealistic. It's how you deal with the errors and, and to give, to give, uh, amplify credit, they're out in front of it. It's probably not their fault on this um, on this uh, uh, situation in California. Probably, uh, we don't know yet. 
uh, stocks down 50 plus percent. And so, you know, you bear the brunt for what you own. Yeah. Last question on this, and I don't want to open a can of worms, but I think part of this problem is, and we don't see it offshore Gulf of Mexico, because I think the rules offshore Gulf of Mexico, the federal government leases basically say, hey, if you were ever in the chain of title, we're coming after you. Yes. You, you, and, and I think that leads to behavior that basically says, okay, we got a problem. We need to fix it. And it's always easier to fix a problem early and it's cheaper to do it. I think what we have seen, just given the dynamics, we had a seller's market for a long time and you were able to get in PSAs. I sell it to you. You accept all of the liabilities going back uh, to the dinosaurs. And I wonder if that hasn't created our problem because, I mean, you know this, there's a leak in the roof. Hey, let's hope it doesn't rain on inspection day, right? Yep. And so I think part of the solution, unfortunately, is going to have to look at the dynamics of people pushing liability, known, known unknown liabilities onto other folks. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. Let's go to Europe. Literally or in our <laughs> discussion? Uh, let's do it in our discussion. Looking at Europe, the impending crisis going on, much like me during pandemic, much like me during Thanksgiving, if you look at any of the prices of any of the energy in Europe, it's up multiples of X over the last year. You look at propane, I believe is up 4X. Power in the various markets are up 3 to 4X over the last year. I mean, we always, when we were investment bankers, created these models that had hockey sticks and we got mocked for it. Europe is actually seeing that in, in energy prices. And so high prices, simple economics always means there's too little supply, there's too great demand, and that's why we're happening. That's why that's happening. Dan, how did we get in this pickle in Europe? Yeah, two, we got there two ways. One is on the supply side, um, actually a couple couple ways on the supply side. So um, the first way is Europe is at the forefront of shifting uh, from from hydrocarbon based uh, energy to renewable energy, and which is fabulous from a carbon perspective, but it also creates volatility, you know, volatility of supply of energy. So they've got fewer fallbacks. They've been phasing out coal. Some of their nuke is down or gone, and so your your supply stack, if you will, is is just much more volatile because the baseload hydrocarbon uh, uh, supply there is down. Then you've got on a global basis, you've got underinvestment that started when prices tanked in, in 2014 and have stayed low through 2020. And so you, you've got underinvestment, which means there aren't as many LNG projects that, are, that have been put forward. Um, you, you don't, you haven't built pipelines from Russia or turned them on yet, et cetera. And so you wind up with um, underinvestment on a global basis, which reduces supply. And then you've, art not artificially, you've made a decision to reduce hydrocarbon power supply by shifting the kinds of fuels you're using. So you put those two things together and you wind up with a COVID recovery in demand, reduced supply and availability of supply. And now Europe is duking it out with the rest of the world to get 
you know, to get gas, to get LNG, and prices are up a bunch. Demand's recovering, supply's down, prices are up. So I want to come back to global in just a second, but sticking just in Europe, uh, everything I read in the weather, and I am obviously not a weather person because I'm not very good looking. They're all very good looking. But um, I'm not a weather person, but everything I read is there's a forecasted La Nina event this winter. Generally speaking, La Nina events mean below average temperatures, particularly in the northern hemisphere. And I'm wondering if we have a cold winter, i.e. winter is coming in Europe. I mean, is this and I hate to be macabre or draconian, but I mean, do we see people freezing to death in Europe? I mean, is there... Does higher price just solve this or do we truly will we truly have folks that can't get the energy they need? Yeah, I think what you'll see is hard choices. Uh, It won't be just what do I have to pay, but what do I have to turn off? And what you'll turn off, I think, in Europe is you'll turn off industry. So you'll prioritize availability of of power and energy for consumers to stay warm. And you'll you'll turn off industry that's not you know, critical to the functioning of, of infrastructure. So, um, you know, factories and uh, some of the big hydrocarbon intensive manufacturing processes run the risk of being interrupted, whether it's they may be willing to pay the price, but the answer is the government's going to say, push it to the people. So I think people will be the priority. Industry will will uh, get shut in or prorated, if you will. And so I doubt if we freeze people any more than that risk. Anytime you have a cold snap of of some sub, sub segments at risk, uh, it won't be a it won't be availability. It'll be the, the normal stuff. So we have two things you've brought up that are potential contagions. Let's go first. Is globally the demand for energy is natural gas now the prettiest girl at the dance everybody's chasing lng bidding up prices china i know that brazil gets two-thirds of its power from hydro and they're suffering through their greatest drought in 100 years they're sucking in lng is this is the energy crunch we're feeling in europe contagious to the rest of the world yeah so if it's a cold winter that could and and you talked about La Nina and whatnot. Um, man, it's been a long time since I've I've felt the need to think about what winter's going to look like or how hot summer going to be. Uh, but that's where you get when you underinvest for six or seven years from a supply perspective. So, is it a contagion? I think um, I think price will rationalize over an intermediate period of time, Chuck. So, I think that that the big headline news stories are going to be around winter, but this will be an ongoing thing. You know, we, we clawed into this hole. We dug this hole over six or seven years. We'll claw our way out of it, but it won't be in six or seven weeks. I think the issues will subside somewhat post-winter, but they're going to be there. This tight supply demand for energy globally is going to be with us for a few years. And we'll see it. We're seeing it in commodities generally, and we'll see it in energy commodities. So a contagion Sounds a little too, I mean, in in the world of a pandemic, that sounds a little too dramatic, but uh, certainly cyclically tight feels correct. On a scale of one being, nah, don't worry about it, bro. 
to scale 10 mortal lock certainty. Where do we stand worldwide economic recession based on this? Um, it isn't a one. Okay. Uh, what we have seen is every challenging situation the world has faced. You've had central banks show up and print money and try to spin their way through it. And so can that, can that happen uh, again if we have high energy prices? Probably. So I'm relatively bullish because I think money remains free and I don't think rates can go up super high. So I would say we're, we are edging from a two or a three into the five or six category, but it's not a 10. It's not a 10. You heard it here first. All right, Dan, let's go back to the future. Okay. Obviously, party like it's 2014. I'm riffing on Prince's 1999. Dan, what 80s pop artist was accused of plagiarizing that song with his own song, which was titled What? Man, I mean, I love 80s music. I know you do. I listen to a lot of music in the 80s. I have absolutely no idea. I'm stumped. So... As a avid listener of Casey Kasem, I am a repository for junk like this. Couldn't remember what finding costs were in the Delaware Basin, but I can remember <laughs> this. Phil Collins with Susu Studio. Go play 1999. Dun, dun, uh, with dun, 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 uh, Accused of plagiarism by Prince. There you have it. So the clip being Party Like It's 2014. Yesterday, we saw the highest WTI prices in seven years. We flirted around with 80. Oil feels back. Uh, you looked at the inner day. I think we hit as much as up as 5% during yesterday. OPEC had met, towed the line on the previous plan. What do we make of oil prices, Dan? Yeah, so this is this is the logical place to be after a complete shellacking of the industry for, you know, five, six, seven years. So when, when you underinvest, you go through a 2000 time period where demand implodes. Um, it's logical that what's happened is companies haven't invested. We haven't invested in supply. Demand comes back because COVID is, is easing and, I think importantly, energy transition is a boogeyman, but it's not a boogeyman that's showing up today. And so prices in the in the 70s, um, with OPEC being very disciplined and not bringing on a ton of incremental supply, they're gradually bringing back this excess supply. Uh, that feels like a reason, you know, this is a reasonable place to be. Another 10 bucks, probably a little unreasonable. You'll get more OPEC supply. Um, so I the other piece of this, and it matters because the paper traders are 10 times bigger than the physical traders. You know, 77 was this resistance number for crude and we're breaking through it. And um, I love the the Evercore technical guy that I read all the time says um, 88 is the next stop. So I'm not predicting it. But um, if I was going to take 10 bucks one direction or another in the next little while, I would 
I would take 10 up versus 10 down, given everything that's happening. So this was interesting. Back in, call it uh, late February, early March 2020, right before the doo-doo hit the fan there, I was in New York. I went and visited with a bunch of public oil and gas investors. Just, hey, I'm private equity. You're public. What are you seeing? Let's compare notes. And one of the things I found very interesting from what I'll call New York folks or outside Texas folks is they kept saying, you guys have gotten so good. You have capped oil at $60 forever in our lifetime. There's no more volatility in the commodity. Therefore, I've got to see you guys run good businesses, et cetera. And the reason I bring that up, Dan, is because you just made those statements. We look out four years, I'm buying oil for 57 bucks a barrel. We're in backwardation. Is the market right to believe that? It, should the long, the four or the five year be 75 as well? What do you think on that? Because I, I ultimately think that delta, call it 60 to 75 or 80, is huge for the values of these stocks. Yeah, 57 bucks on the 2025 calendar uh, WTI strip feels too cheap, right? If I If you made me buy oil... Um, would I, would I buy a $78 front month or $57 2025 crude? I'd buy, I'd buy the out months. Um, you know, I think oil should be 65 to 70 that to me. And that's been my number for a while felt like a pretty stupid number, you know, when oil was 30, but I mean, that's the price I think you need to make a return across the globe and, um, and feel like it's, it's reasonable. You now have this overhang of energy transition and mind shares getting sucked away. And so folks are diverting capital into other areas. Um, but OPEC, the U S globally, you make decent money at, at, in the sixties. And I think you got to make decent money for a while. So, uh, I'd rather buy the back end of the curve than the front end of the curve. We're backwardated. Like you said, you know, does it flatten out? If you looked back to the beginning of this year, we had a very flat five-year curve, and um, and and I think the question is, does does the back come up to the front? And over time, my guess is that we're going to flatten that curve toward, you know, closer toward seventy than than down toward fifty-seven. And when you look and make your analysis on that, how much of it? in your mind is oil and gas, supply, demand, your knowledge of what the U.S. can deliver in terms of barrels, what Saudi can deliver in barrels, et cetera, versus how much of this is just good old-fashioned monetary inflation type stuff? Because, I mean, you and I are old enough to remember inflation actually is real. Hmm. I think any CIO that's under, call it 45, has no clue. I mean, there have been papers written that say, Monet, you know, because of monetary policy today, we can't have inflation. Well, it feels pretty real because the uh, the chicken sandwich at Popeyes is up two hundred percent over the last eighteen months. So, any any monetary policy playing here, or is everybody printing money so it doesn't matter? Um, I think that's part of it. The way I tend to think about it is much more just supply and demand dynamics. Uh, the inflation piece is the kicker. It's probably the kicker that throws fuel on a fire, you get a flash. And then the risk is your fire down, <laughs> dies down a little quicker. And so, you know, I don't think I'm giving a presentation later today. I don't think we want a hundred dollar oil because a hundred dollar oil will change things. What will it do? It'll encourage people on the margin to get more aggressive spending on the supply side. It'll hurt demand on the margin. So 
Um, inflation's the fuel on the fire. I hope we, frankly, I hope we don't have it because I'd rather have, you know, I'd rather have three or four years of 75 than one year of a hundred and a quarter. So, uh, so I think you have that risk. I don't know how to handicap it. And I will say, Chuck, your intro to this was you were up in New York talking to the public guys. This is 2014. We know why you were there. You were there to sell stuff to the public <laughs> investors. You were going to bring companies public. And, and uh, so we know you were up there. They're figuring that out. But unfortunately, the market took that opportunity away. To that end, Dan, you have missed the most important point, and we do need one year of oil being $100 a barrel because I can claim to be smart again. There we and go. That would be important. Claim. claim. All right. Real quick, because Dan has got to get out of here in six minutes. We've got three very important things to do. The first thing we're going to start off with is the thunder round. Dan, why do all of these oil and gas companies change their name to look like pharmaceuticals? Yeah. Anybody that's ever tried to name a company, Chuck, if every rock, tree, river, any cool name is taken. Um, when, when we started TPH ages ago, we didn't want to call it Tudor Pickering Holt. We wanted to call it a cool name. And uh, we went through 75 options. So you got to find something. You got to make it up. And so that's why they're doing it. They, they want a fresh start and a new look. And finding a new name is tough. There we go. There we go. Let's fire through some of these ticker symbols. CVE, what do you think? Yeah, Canadian heavy oil, uh, high fixed costs, low variable costs. Not a particularly carbon friendly name, but uh, in, the, in the vein of making money, you want to own high fixed cost producers when oil prices is going up. So CV is interesting, uh, but getting, getting the broad crowd to come back to it because it's heavy oil could be a little tough. Gotcha. Let's go to what I'll call maybe the granddaddy of them all, EOG. What do you think there? The granddaddy, EOG, the, the market wants a defined return of capital plan. Um, a lot of folks are saying, I will give you X cents of dividend and I'll give you 75% of my incremental cash. EOG just says, I'm going to give you a dividend. I'm going to return capital. I'm not going to tell you exactly why. So a great company. Stocks lag because they're not providing that clarity. I think they're going to have to prove to people what they're going to do. I don't think they'll give us that clarity. So I put it middle of the pack. Why would you give shareholders money back when you can drill the Buddha? I don't get it. SD, unhedged, right? Yeah. So this is this was interesting about the names that folks wanted to talk about. I don't know SD that well. It's fallen off my radar screen, uh, along with a couple other names. That How many folks times? About. Uh, <laughs> um, so the answer is we're going to spend the next two years rediscovering some of these companies that had former glory, fell to a very small market cap, and are now kind of clawing their way back into mindshare. So SD, I have no opinion other than folks are coming toward these kinds of names. Gotcha. With the majors, we got a question here on Chevron versus Exxon. Yeah, really, really interesting question. So point number one, if you're bullish and want to play offense, it's neither Chevron nor Exxon because you get more juice in EOG, you get more juice in, in other names. So um, it's neither if you are trying to score a bunch of runs in a, in a baseball game. Uh, Chevron versus Exxon. Chevron's uh, sort of out front 
Uh, I think their motto is is higher returns, lower carbon. Those are two things that investors want. Exxon's Exxon hasn't generated great returns and isn't out front on carbon. And so um, that and the asset mix and the valuations, I like Chevron better than Exxon. Gotcha. And then our final two in the lightning round, and then we got a question we're going to pull up. BRY and NOG. What can we do without BRV's favorite company? There we go. BRY, um, California exposure. But but I'll say BRY and NOG are both names that are still, again, a little below the radar screen when you're trying to keep track of a bunch of different companies. Um, NOG has a non-operated model that I find interesting. And, um, you know, the, the market's been worried about debt. Leverage in a higher commodity price world is going to be a good thing for companies. And so I think um, of of these two, uh, I'd say no opinion on either, but I'm doing work on both. So 90s random is saying, pull a Sankey and give us a short and a long. A short and a long. Um, so I've been, I'm going to give a, a directional long or, or sorry, a generic long, which is I still love the Permian ENPs. So pick your favorite, uh, whether that's Devon, Diamondback, Pioneer, um, you can go down into some smaller ones, CDEV, et cetera. You know, Permian's low cost and uh, that's where you want to be because there will be volatility in this market. So I love, I still love the the producers. And then I, th- I think you can be, uh, short the majors against them. So I would put, you know, Exxon against those as a pair. Um, I don't, I don't think it makes a ton of sense to be short much right now because money's starting to flow back to the sector and, you know, you short the guy that's going to go bankrupt and you get your head torn off, right? There were a bunch of people a year ago that, that were short $2 stocks that are now $8 stocks. Uh, that is not the right approach in a bull market. So I'd be careful with my shorts. Once again, Dan, you're wrong. I'm you wrong. Short, short the index, go long the commodity. Okay. We're going to buy the barrels out four to five years. We're going to short all of them because ultimately they will piss away the money. But that is me from the sidelines. Dan, a bittersweet moment this morning. You sent me an email uh, with an announcement from your former form. For, your former firm. You want to tell us what happened? Yeah. So uh, big news. I'm a... a Tudor Pickering Holt alumni and one of the founders of that business all the way back to 2007. Um, as you know, we spun out in 2019 uh, Pickering Energy Partners, but today uh, Bobby Tudor and Maynard Holt announced that they'll be retiring at the end of the year, which was, uh, it is a bittersweet moment because that business has become a fabulous franchise. And um, when when you build something, it becomes, you know, uh, the equivalent of your baby. And so to see changes like that, it is bittersweet. Uh, the good news here from my perspective as a as an ongoing shareholder in that business is there's a 150 high quality people in the business. Um, you know, Bobby Tudor's been a big philanthropist and is going to spend more time doing that. You know, Maynard Maynard wants to be a competitor to to digital wildcatters, I guess. You know, he's got this close of business uh podcast that he loves to do. And so I think, you know, I think they'll both take some time off and, and think about what's next. So my two favorite Bobby Tudor Maynard Holt stories real quick. 
I run around and tell everyone I talk to that Bobby Tudor is the career leader in turnovers at Rice University, and only Rice would name their gym after the career leader in turnovers. Actually, not a true statistic. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. But But it's a good story. Everybody believes it. And then um, I lived four houses down from Maynard uh, for many years. Met Met Maynard first in college. I lived four houses down for him. Now the former Mrs. Yates has that house. But I was driving my kiddos past uh, Maynard's house and my 15-year-old daughter, Sarah, said, Dad, you know, if you told me Mr. Holt had a giraffe in his backyard, I'd believe that. So... Or 17 Jeeps. Or 17 Jeeps. So, exactly. Yeah. B- bittersweet moment. The firm will be fine. They'll be fine. And it's, but it's a, you know, it's a meaningful moment for the firm. So what I'm going to ask you, Bobby and Maynard to do is when we can corral the three of y'all at some point, um, love to have y'all on the podcast and yeah. talk about the founding. That would of be Tudor exciting. Holt. Yeah, I think that would be a lot of fun. Dan, you were great to come do this. I am happy to do it, Chuck. This was fun. And we're only two minutes late. So, ladies and gentlemen, here it is, your finger of the week.